0: Good. Some thoughts tonight about the, the territory of meditation. We've heard a few of you in groups today, and we acknowledge you have arrived. Uh, the territory of meditation is uh, it's, it's an area of many, many facets and many features. I'd, uh, I'd like to look at, at some of the psychological manifestations in there and uh, look at this from two vantage points one the traditional one what happens to a mind that is not still and maybe a more psychological one and see whether they overlap the Buddhist psychology psychology speaks of the struggle of meditation um, in, in actually quite a number of terms yeah, this this remarkable psychological differentiation of things that can hinder the mind on, on its way to quiet, to stillness, to samatha and on its way to insight, to uh, panya, or to the experience of the Brahmaviharas, the four tones of universal empathy. So there's quite a few things that can go wrong with the mind. And um, it may be interesting to actually look what how does this specifically translate into my experience. So these things that can go wrong are not just something some obscure Buddhist and some obscure books have been thinking and writing about, but actually does this have something to do with what is going on in my mind? Or the mind that I most often take to be mine? The story is simple, we have a fellow called Sankarava, who is a Brahman, who, in, as some of you will know, Brahminimical teaching, it hinges on learning a lot of stuff by heart and then reproducing it. This is a solitary act opposed to Buddhists who do such things collectively. The Brahminical tradition has been famous for reciting by rote or memory uh, individually. That's where the Buddhists learned it from. Um, So our Brahman named Sangarava comes to the Buddha and says, Look, there are strange things happening. I have learned many things in my life by heart, and there are days when even the stuff I've learned by heart very well, I can barely recall. And yet there are other days when the stuff I have only cursorily learned by heart, uh, basically I can uh, recite quite well. It seems that my brain or my memory is working much better. Why is this the case? And then the Buddha proceeds to explain to our man Sangharava the five meditational obstacles, the five Nivaranas, and he... Uh, gives an analogy. So, like last night, there's an analogy part and there's an explanatory part. And the analogy starts off with, suppose Sangharava, there is a man trying to recognize his own face. Psychologists, Hark, this is a very telling symbol. person seeking to recognize him or herself is a very telling old image. Uh, So the man tries to find something in which he can recognize his face and he looks for a vessel with water. And that water, in turn, is coloured, it is bubbly, it is mossy, it is uh, churned up, or it is troubled, it is cloudy. Those five images um, stop our man, or our woman, for that matter, to be able to recognise in a mirror his or her own face, because that mirror image is disturbed either by the color, or by the moss, or uh, by the cloudiness, or by the waves, or uh, finally by uh, yeah the cloudiness is the last bit, but the being whipped up is one, and bubbling with because the water is boiling is is another one. So, so our person cannot recognize his own face and. He or she cannot recognize his or her own good, nor the good of anybody else. And that is the condition of a meditator who struggles with a mind that is in turn assailed by forms of desire, forms of aversion, forms of sleepiness or drowsiness, forms of restlessness, agitation, and finally doubt. Now, it may be interesting to acknowledge that since you're here sitting with very limited uh, possibilities to engage your greed and desire, your restlessness, you know, there's severe restrictions being placed upon acting out on greed here on a Buddhist meditation retreat. You know, the chances are fairly slim. So, usually, the resort is when these forces are at work. What I engage in is thinking. So it may be fair to say that three and a half of those five hindrances are thoughts, forms of thought. So these will manifest as thinking. If you struggle with thought as a pattern that stops your mind from being collected, then it may at some point become interesting to actually look what kind of thoughts. There are very different kinds of thoughts. Just calling them thoughts doesn't necessarily... This is not very diagnostically sophisticated. If the thought is recurrent, if there is a pattern, if you are familiar with that thought, it may be useful to... Investigate further what brand of thought. Now for that we need to, you know, color or uh, get some background. What that is? What is desire? What is kama chanda? What is a mind that is afflicted by forms of desire? What does such a mind look like? Well, such a mind looks actually quite... People who are afflicted by desire, they're quite, they're quite pleasant people, you know. They're quite good people. They enjoy. They know how to savor. They, often they like to share. Yeah? Greedy people are great. Great to have around. Yeah? They're really pleasant. They're, you know, they have something warm. Something life-affirming. They are pleasant. As long as their greed is satiated, greedy people are really uh, quite popular, <coughs> you know. And, you know, the word greed sounds really bad, or desire, it sounds really bad, yeah. Many people feel, well, actually, I, you know, I don't really have much of this, I'm quite normal, yeah? I, I, you know, they think of desire, yeah, okay, sex, food. Hogging things yeah but Buddhists are a lot more strict than this you know Buddhists think that desire is anything that seeks pleasure and when it's pleasant and occurring without being thought after when affirmed consented to and wished for when you wish for repetition of that which is pleasant and agreeable then this is desire yeah. you're actually actively engaged not just in the reception of uh, something pleasant, that in itself is not desire. There's a a very clear distinction between the experience of what is pleasant, what is agreeable, even what is stimulating, and the experience of desires. These are two different things. That's the good news. The bad news is, it is very unlikely that you experience pleasant things, agreeable things, gratifying things, without some desire being invoked in, you, in your mind. Yeah. The honest acknowledgement is that it takes quite some degree of freedom from desire for you to be able to experience profoundly pleasant things, or even mildly pleasant things, without you wishing for this to continue, without you for wishing to slightly vary this, without you wishing for having more of it, or having it again tomorrow, or having the green version of it or, um, you know, making sure that it hits another spot or so. Yeah? It's, it's quite normal to respond to forms of pleasantness with relish, appreciation, and then the wish that this persist or the wish that this in some way come back or the wish that this some way could be owned, yeah, held, savored, married, taken away, visited. <laughs> whatever. Uh, This is a very natural movement for us. The body does it, you know. If it receives warmth or touch or something soft, it kind of it's it's leaning into. And the mind does that as well. So there is a very fundamental tendency of the human mind to lean into that which is pleasant. We quite naturally Lean into this. We don't have to be affected with horrible, desirous thoughts. You know, babies do it without having any uh, greatly cognitive notion of desire or any fantasies. You know, we, there's something in us that quite clearly inclines towards things that are pleasant and t- disinclines to things that are unpleasant. It's a very, very old principle. It goes back way beyond. Primates. It goes back to you know very simple things: a couple of amino acids strung together. Long before they do things like oxygen breathing, sexuality, or complicated things like that. Long before that, little flagellum propelling itself. If it's nice, it's moving in there. Yeah, it's going to be fed by it. If it's not nice, it's going to move away. Yeah, very very simple principle. Let's call it irritability. It's sensitive, and if it's nice, if it's nourishing, it's going there. If it's not nice, if it's toxic, it's going away. This principle that is intrinsic to all forms of life is obviously still very at work in the human mind. It happens on many levels. It happens on our... um, it, It governs basically the economy of our attention, you know, we want Vedana, the pre- appreciative quality, the capacity to acknowledge pleasantness, gratification, pleasure, um, comfort, things like that, or the opposite, discomfort, displeasure, uh, uh, things that produce you know, unpleasant uh, feeling tone or unpleasant mental uh, feeling tone uh, is equally strong. So this principle holds true not just for little monocellular creatures, a couple of amino acids. It holds true for the whole human mind. If you're not sure why you're doing the things you're doing, look at what you get out of it. Look at what you're trying to get away from. And you will probably find a lot of explanation for your behavior. If you find yourself doing things that you don't understand why you're doing them. Uh, (coughs) Usually there you don't have to look too far to find some form of desire or some form of gratification seeking or some form of avoidance of displeasure, avoidance of discomfort in there. It happens long before you think. If you're freezing and you come in, your body will have found out where the radiator is long before you think where the radiator is. It will just naturally gravitate to the corner where, it, where the warmth come from, yeah. and it will offer its. Largest part there, you know, a back or a chest where most heat can be absorbed. You don't have to think much about this. Your body will just do this quite naturally. So, desire is nothing else but the outcome of a highly natural tendency of this body and this mind to maximize pleasure and to minimize displeasure. There's nothing moral or immoral about it at that stage. Yeah? It's just That's the givens, and it runs very deep. And to not acknowledge this is probably unrealistic. Now, we don't really have much choice about this as long as this doesn't become conscious. Now, desire sets in when we appreciate things and consent and clearly, strategically seek to maximize this pleasure. To maintain this pleasure, to vary this pleasure, to keep it, to seek it again—that yeah. is what Buddhist tradition calls desire. And you know, honestly, you'd have to say that desire is one of the major motors for, say, prosperity in a society. It is a major motor uh, in the acquisition of, you know, wealth in uh, economy, in civilization. Basically, we. Uh, We operate on desire. It would be foolish to think that without desire we do not. You know, that desire hasn't made us in some way progress. Even spiritual life doesn't work without desire, just to be clear. You can't get out of it so quickly. Just by goodwill and some honest determination to be a proper desireless Buddhist now doesn't do the job. There's even one very clear passage in the suttas where the Buddha speaks in quite stark terms and says, um, it is through desire, and the word there is tanha, it is through desire that desire is given up. In other words, there is an acknowledgement in Buddhist teachings that unless we have a motor of um, volitional energy fueled by forms of desire, that is actually taking us into a process whereby we can move beyond desire. Now, how does desire sound in our language? It sounds like wish. It sounds like aspiration. It sounds like um, need. It sounds like um, I I want this. It sounds like um, we need to do this. So desire has many names. Longing is one of them. Um, in our psychological language, we have various forms of desire. Some of them are moving toward things, they're more acquisitive, more and some of them, these forms of desire are trying to move away from things. Yeah. So the term desire in Buddhist teaching, usually termed tanha, thirst goes way beyond what we would call desire, in probably the English connotation of the of that term. So, <clears throat> and it has to see it has to be seen that desire is something that is very common. It is very likely that right now you have desire, some form of desire. Now we're still not being moral about this. You know? There's no move without desire. You, know? you will need to engage, to find ways to turn the desire that is operative in your mind into a wholesome direction. It is with the energy of this desire that growth takes place. Desire is the motor, not just of societies and prosperity, but also it is the motor of, of our wish to grow. It is the motor of our wish to understand. It is the motor of our wish to free ourselves. So we're in a bind. Desire is, at one, on one hand, a big problem, because it seems to dissipate mental energy, it seems to comp- continually let us down. At the same time, we seem to depend on its energy for moving on. You know? now, this is not an easy situation to be in. How do I actually distinguish my aspirations from my greed? How do I uh, distinguish my desires from my needs? You know, needs, I don't have a choice. If I do not meet a need, there's something that is going to atrophy, atrophy. There's something that's going to dwindle. At best, I will be retarded in my development. At worst, I will actually... Something is going to be stunted in the growth of this heart or this body or this mind. Desires, I do have a choice. If I give up desires, I tend tend to become stronger. If I try to give up needs, I tend to become weaker. Yeah. So the distinction is needed there. And there's no easy distinction. I couldn't give you a recipe how to just distinguish this. We all have to become our own experts. So desire as an experience for me in my meditation will come up along something like I think of something that gives me a pleasant feeling. And I decide, oh, let me think this again. That is desire. That's the most simple form. Something pleasant comes up. A nice thought, I think, of Peter, or a recipe, or what will I do when I get out here alive? And then I kind of go back to this, and I picture that more clearly. What will I go? Where will I go with Peter? What will we eat? How will he look? blameless, isn't it? Harmless. Loving people, thinking of something I enjoy doing with somebody I love. This is desire. Like it or not, this is desire. This thought right now is taking away energy. This thought right now is dissipating some of that strength with which you could make your mind still. If you're gonna follow that thought, as the thought suggests, you know, think me through once more, be more illustrative. Um, Yeah, we could do that, but we could also do something else. Let me think about this right now. This will give you a pleasant feeling, a warmth. It will give you um, images in your head. It will give you a tingling. Uh, It will vitalize you. Sleepiness will not be a problem anymore. Um, You will feel good. Maybe a smile will start on your face. And yet, your mind will not become quiet on this. If you are following the wish to feel more of that good, warm, fuzzy feeling, you will forsake your chances for your mind to become more quiet and still. So while desire seems perfectly harmless in terms of mora- morality, yeah? when you think of Peter and whether you go and eat the pizza or not, or whether the daffodils will be nicest, or something like that, yeah. in terms of samadhi, Desire is really detrimental. Our societies think very differently about desire. Yeah? Our societies are generally very affirmative of desire. They take a dim view on desire if it's abusive, if it's addictive, if it's illegal, you know, if the things that you get a kick out of are, are hurting other people, then generally our societies take a dim view on desire. But mostly our societies are very desire-affirmative. That is where Buddhist teaching is really radical. It really says, look, if you want to be happy, and if you want to be free, and if you want to wake up, you you have to make a choice here. You can either follow that which gives you a warm fuzzy feeling, and then you will think, and you will get thoughts and images and fantasies, and they will in turn give you more of those feelings, Although you're just still sitting here, you're not with Peter. No pizza, no daffodils. You're sitting here, yeah? We're just speaking of thoughts and fantasies, just to be clear. We're not speaking against daffodils or Peter or pizzas. We're just, we're thinking, we're speaking of sitting here thinking of these things, evoking these things in our mind, picturing these things, and feeling an afterglow of pleasant feelings. Not as much pleasant feelings as Peter, the pizza, and the daffodils would actually give us. But still, some kind of semblance of it. At that moment, I forsake my possibilities to make that mind more still, more one-pointed, more clear. It's that radical. I have to make a choice. Will I continue seeking the gratification I get from, even if it's only a semblance of gratification, of what I think of? And pursue that, and then my mind will wander. My mind will fantasize. My mind will, you know, depending on how good I get at imagining the pizza, I will start salivating. I, you know, you may actually start feeling the daffodils so much in your nose that your um, that your asthma response kicks in. <laughs> yeah, Bodies can respond to to images and fantasies quite strongly. If you remember having woken up in a dream, you know, with a uh, sexual arousal or with an, an anxiety uh, anxiety sweat, you know. <laughs> All this is in, induced by simple images in your, in your mind. Yeah? Images are powerful. If you've been fasting a few days, you may remember tortelloni, or consola, so much so that you actually feel it right now in your mouth. If you we were asked while you were still eating whether you remembered eating those, you would say, no, I don't think I've ever eaten those. But part of your brain remembers, and under a few conditional changes like fasting, this memory comes back, very powerfully so, that your body starts kicking. (laughs) So these images have power. And it is the power that moves the mind. And it is that movement which prohibits or impedes the mind from actually finding stillness and stability. So the meditators are faced with fairly stark choices. They actually have to protect their intention to make the mind still, with the willingness to say no to such offers. Peter and pizza and the daffodils. It's not that you have to leave Peter and never give up pizzas and, you know, meet daffodils only with downcast eyes or so. But you have to give up thinking about these things right now, when you want to meditate and make the mind still. And that is not so easy. And finally, your meditation will hinge on your willingness to do that. Your willingness to give up, to let go of the gratification seeking at that moment, for the sake of... A greater degree of stillness, a greater stability, a mind that is not uh, titillated with the possibility of gratification through thinking pleasant thoughts, harboring pleasant concepts, following pleasant fantasies. Now, this is still not about moral, understand me correct. This is just how the mind works. It's perfectly moral to sit here and think pleasant thoughts and have pleasant feelings. There's nothing unmoral about this. But it is detrimental to the stabilizing of your mind. And as you know, if your mind is not stabilized, the next thought may be not of Peter, but it may be of Roger. And Roger you have a really bad history with. Yeah. And, you know, your mind doesn't go into the pleasant corner, it goes into the unpleasant corner. Yeah. So, There is another story going on there, in which you will not be gratified, in which you will be um, having unpleasant experiences, unpleasant moods, unpleasant images, unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant bodily states. Things will be seizing up. Where the warm tingling was now, constriction occurs. So, as a meditator, it's important to learn to identify desire, even when it comes in as harmless a form as a pleasant thought which suggests I maintain it, I indulge a little bit in it. We've all done that. I'd be very concerned for you if you tell me you've never done that, if you've never indulged in a sex fantasy or in a food fantasy or in a holiday fantasy. I'd be very concerned. Come and talk to me about it. But obviously it it doesn't work. The promise of happiness and gratification (coughs) that comes from such a fantasy is never delivered. Because essentially you're sitting here, you know. You don't actually get it. No daffodils, no pizzas, no sex. You don't get it. You're here. It's a fantasy. And the fantasy leaves you either bored or longing and unfulfilled (coughs) or slightly jaded after a while. And you've lost possibilities, you've lost energy, you've lost time, you've lost an opportunity to find a type of happiness that comes not from gratification. It's important to understand the theory and the starkness of this, to understand why obstacles in meditation are called obstacles. Not because it's kind of, you shouldn't have fun. If you can have fun, wonderful, have as much fun as you have. Clean fun is great. Try not to attach to it. And the truth is, it's very difficult not to attach to things which are pleasant unless you have an alternative to feel pleasant without gratification. Yeah. And in Buddhist tradition, the alternative to that, the gratification is a mind that is happy. Happy because it knows its own stillness, knows its own clarity, knows its own sweetness. That's one of the reasons why people suggest in Buddhist tradition to cultivate stillness of mind. There's three reasons to be clear. One reason is because that stillness heightens the capacity of the mind to understand more deeply. Without going into great complications, citta has basically three functions. One of them is rudimentary sensitivity. Second function is um, responding with impulses to that sensitivity. In other words, processing the sensory input you have and responding to that in some way with volitional activity. For example, desire, will, setting boundaries, things like that. The first one would be um, simple sensory input. The second one would be sankharas, would be formations. And the third function of mind is to understand. It's a capacity to understand. Now, that third function is greatly improved if the mind is not preoccupied with the previous two functions. The less sensory input it has, the less processing of that sensory input is necessary, the greater is the degree of clarity and capacity to understand things. That's where meditation comes in. That's why. contemplative traditions favor meditation because it heightens the mind's capacity to completely <coughs> understand yeah. not just cognitively twig but to actually profoundly understand you know, a hard mind understanding so to heighten that opportunity for the mind to understand deeply meditative efforts are geared to at least in parts diminish the sensory input and to diminish the reactivity towards that sensory input, so that the heightened capacity to understand is, is, um, is, is available, becomes, uh, becomes more accessible. And uh, samadhi, or stillness of mind, is one of the reasons, uh, one of the tools that makes this greater capacity to understand possible. That's the famous one. There are two other ones. Samadhi uh, is also something that makes you feel good. It makes you feel whole. It is a way you can connect with the strength in your being that is not easily accessible if you believe in your thoughts or if you um, are completely you know, in, in, enthralled by your emotions. Yeah. The stillness of mind gives you, on a profound level, forms of confidence. It gives you a form of center, It gives you a stability, even if you are not actually in a state of samadhi. Just to know that this mind is capable of achieving deep stillness is a very, very reassuring experience. When you do actually achieve it, then it is very pleasant. It makes you feel very whole. It makes you feel very in one piece. It's it's the opposite of frantic. It's the opposite of stress. It's the opposite of feeling fragmented. So Buddhist traditions encourage this kind of thing because it makes you feel good. And the third reason why Buddhist traditions encourage Samadhi is because when you have a mind that is still and experiences the sweetness and its own wholeness of being deeply absorbed or deeply still, then you have suddenly, the first time, a a perspective on other forms of gratification. This mind wants to be happy. If the only type of happiness it knows is being gratified through senses, through getting what it wants, through manipulating the world in ways that the pleasant things increase and the unpleasant things decrease, if that is the only way I know how to be happy, then this is what my mind would like to do. It will try to seek to be happy in ways it is familiar with. Now, unless... I have some alternative ways to make this mind happy. My mind will keep seeking this. You know, I can wag my finger, or I can try to browbeat with some Buddhist wisdom, impermanence, it's bad for you, you know, I can do a thousand things. You can do Buddhist numbers, or Christian numbers, or moralist numbers, whatever. You won't stop your mind seeking happiness. You know, minds want to be happy. It knows that it can be happy, and it will not stop seeking that. And it will try to seek that happiness in ways it is familiar with. Unless it has any alternatives, it will just go to the fridge. Yeah. This is the most this is the healthy response. Yeah. Now, samadhi and the stillness that comes from samadhi, I'm not even speaking of jhanas but I'm actually speaking of just the capacity to know that the still mind is possible for me and the still mind is is you know, that you have experienced that there is peace in there, that there is strength in there, that there is confidence in there, that things are in one piece in there. Just to know that gives you, for the first time, a genuine alternative to the fridge, yeah, to seeking happiness through controlling or manipulating or gratifying your senses. So the third reason why samadhi is interesting is because through the capacity to experience the sweetness of a mind that is stilled, I have a first time, actually, a chance to get a perspective on my other pursuits of happiness. Now, obviously, this doesn't, for most of us, this doesn't just happen. Some of us fall into Samadhi states by a chance. There's, history is quite full of people who have had some dramatic Samadhi experiences out of the blue. But for most people, this needs to be practiced. Samadhi is something that can be practiced. Whether you think you're talented or not, uh, I wouldn't believe yourself too much about your own condition on this score. Uh, it takes practice. It takes some time. It takes some effort. And particularly, it takes some clarity. And one of the things that it, it entails is, <clears throat> there's two things that are particularly effective for, about it, for it. One is, is your willingness to let go. And if you want to have samadhi, the quickest way to do that is Practice meta, make the mind soft and practice letting go. That is what you need when that pleasant thought comes up and invites you to play with it for a while. You need to be able to say, "You are a pleasant thought. I really relished that experience. You are a, a, you know, a vague semblance of. And now you invite me to play with you to get some warm feeling out of this, but actually. If I do that, I lose my opportunity to make this mind that is capable of greater, greater happiness than you <laughs> thought are capable of giving me, I lose my opportunity to do that. Yeah. And you need to be able to do that, to say that and to do that. Not one time, but a thousand times. Maybe ten thousand times. And out of that, some stillness will come. And unless you understand that theory, then, you know... These Buddhist teachings of desire being detrimental to happiness is just going to sound like moralistic nonsense. And as long as you don't try actually to find a stillness and the sweetness of mind that comes not from sensory gratification, yet, but that comes from the mind base itself, you will never be able to verify that. Yeah. That's why meditation is not will always be a marginal pastime, yeah. because it's not easy to do this. It it takes challenging conditioning. It is counterintuitive. Why should I let go of a thought that gives me reliable warmth and fuzzy feelings for the possibility of a deeper happiness that I have never experienced? That may be just a kinjano's fantasy, or that may not work for me for some reason. Only if I'm willing to challenge my conditioning to do counterintuitively not follow that thought that promises me some reliable gratification, I have a chance to actually deepen my stillness. It's that radical. So with that bit of theory, let me go into the second of the hindrances. The second of the hindrances is um, basically ill will. It's byapada. It's the opposite of desire. It's just the flip side of the coin. When I Cultivate desire, I automatically also cultivate forms of ill will. I particularly will experience that when I do not get the fulfillment of desire. Because remember, many things can go wrong with desire. You know, A. I may not get what I want. That's the most obvious one. I may be frustrated because I do not have a chance to fulfill my desires. I've always maintained desires that I couldn't manage to fulfill. I don't know how about you, but I've always had... Plenty of fantasies for things to be desiring uh, <clears throat> that I could not fulfill. I remember being 17 and having a fascination for very expensive Cuban cigars, which I couldn't afford. Yeah, and I was poignantly aware of the discrepancy between my means to afford what would gratify my desires and, uh, um, and the existence of such things. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's not as obvious as that. So, the other story uh, that can go wrong with desire is I can get (coughs) what I wanted, but it doesn't deliver. Maybe my expectation of what it would deliver was overrated. I was not realistic. I expected more from the fulfillment of that desire. And it turns out I am actually getting what I want, but it doesn't deliver. I'm not content. Sometimes I it does deliver. I'm very happy, um, but not for long. You know. <clears throat> it just gets there, but it doesn't quite hit the spot. You know. I, need, I need it a little more, you know. and so I am left with something that is promising, great happiness, and even gives me an inkling of it. But then it leaves me high and dry. Even though I get what I actually wanted, I didn't quite get enough of it. Or, it may be exactly as good as I expected it to be. I may actually get it. It completely makes me happy. And Then I start fretting. You know, will I have it again tomorrow? Will will somebody take it away from me? What if it stops now? So, although while I'm relishing it, I may be actually already preoccupied with anxiety of loss or of diminishing. And there's good reasons to fear that, because we do not respond in equal measure to the same type of stimulation. I may actually get exactly what I want, but it somehow seems to lose its power, to gratify. I'm in the land of the law of diminishing returns. I I kind of get what I want, but I can't maintain the degree of gratification from the same degree of stimulation. Yesterday it was a a longing. Today I get it. Tomorrow I'm basking in the fullness of my satisfaction. The day after it will become normal. The day after I'll get bored with it. And the day after it's collecting dust. We've all been there. We've all done that. You've enjoyed so many things. You know this. I'm not telling you something new. So even if desire is fulfilled, many things can go wrong with desire. We know this. The second hindrance kicks in when I don't get what I want. I tend to get annoyed. I tend to be frustrated. I become um, grumpy or despondent. Um, Ill will is also um, coming from other corners. It It is basically the fundamental movement, if we're going back to the amoebas, or the, the amino acids, to be more precise, you know, the one movement towards the acquisitive movement, that's the desire movement, and the other movement is away from, it's the rejection movement, it's the pushing aside, it's the, 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 yeah, this kind of movement. Yeah. So the second obstacle is when the mind does this, it is engaging in forms of um, ill-will that comes across as thoughts about things I don't like. I don't like if she leaves open the window. I don't like his nylon trousers when I'm supposed to be meditating and he crackles with them. I, I don't like having to wait in queues. I don't like people who take so much salad that other people don't seem to get <laughs> enough. Yeah. This is a thought. Yeah. If you're uh, experiencing ill will in meditation, you will be filled with thoughts that give you feelings of aversion. Um, Anger, hatred. Um, it, your mind will say things. I don't want. I don't like. Let's stop this. Can't. Doesn't do anybody about something about it. You know, you know. It. It will look for ways to stop, to prohibit, to make to make things go away, to push things aside. It will have this movement. And as a meditator, you know, as an obstacle, this will be thoughts. The worst of them are generally focusing on your own person. You you will hate parts of yourself. You will hate your sleepiness, you will hate your... uh, your, You know, whatever. You can hate lots of yourself. So, it's necessary to recognize that behind the thought which you have identified as the obstacle to meditation, it's the energy of that thought that propels the thought. And that energy may be ill-will. It may be aversion. It may be anger. It may be <clears throat> something pushing aside. Yeah? The most natural forms of movement in our life. Yeah? If it's nice, get it. If it's not nice, put it, push it aside. And that will come up by me thinking so Some of us vitalize ourselves by thinking thoughts they hate. So some of us vitalize ourselves by desiring things. You know, I think of things that I would like. Some of us are not like that. We think of things that we don't like. Yeah. Because it solidifies, it affirms our personal construct. We feel energy. I'm always the one who sees the mistakes. Yeah. If you're a liker, then you kind of come in and say, Oh, lovely, yeah, great, courteous. Yeah, <laughs> they really did a wonderful job here on that you know, creamy yellow. That's good, Yeah. Where is it nicest? Where is the fattest cushion? You know, where, where can I see most? You know, that, that's the desire mind. The aversion mind comes in and says, oh God, these windows are really not really tight, is it? Yeah. It's a con- con- continuous draft in here. God, England. England and climate. And... Ah, where, where is it the least drafty? Oh, she's already sitting there. You know, this was my spot. I've really figured out why somebody put my seat away. You know, what do they think they are? They kind of move my seat away. You know, <clears throat> I don't want to sit in front of that colored blotch on the wall. It makes me think of my childhood. And it's horrible because it's an institution. <laughs> you know, you go into this kind of thing. So that's the, that's the anger type mind. Well, well, and both minds vitalize themselves. You know, both of them are alive. Both of them feel their energy. One Seeking to acquire enjoy, and the other one seeking to hate yeah? so if you're if you're having a mind that keeps complaining <coughs> and you you can be pretty sure that if it's going to complain about other people sooner or later it's going to complain about yourself it's going to turn in it's going to turn on you. Um, that is, the des- that is, one is the desire mind and the other one is the biyapada is the, the mind, the ill-will mind, the aversion mind. So it's necessary if thoughts come, rather than being preoccupied with the particulars of the content of these thoughts, to actually get in touch with the energy underneath, the propellant that moves the thought. You know. It's these thought sails that are flying over your inner lake. And it's, the energy is the wind that blows these little sails across your inner lake, And you can, there's not much point in negotiating the individual ships, the individual sails, you know. You have to negotiate the wind that blows them. And that wind is a desire wind, or it's an immersion wind. (coughs) The third of the uh, hindrances is called tinamida in Pali, and it basically means... (coughs) Anything from drowsiness, sleepiness, to a kind of numb, stuporific state. The um, connotations for one of the the terms in the composite is uh, a kind of stuporific, something that is numb, something that doesn't respond and resonate and move. So this is a big issue in meditators' lives. Um, Now there are many reasons for sleepiness. Let me just name a few. Um, there is honest exhaustion. Yeah. That is the most straightforward one. These systems have a limited time, time uh, amount of energy, and if they're tired, they they go to sleep. Yeah. So, if a body is tired, you may be able to hold it with the mind that is still energized. But if a mind is tired, you will not be able to hold it. So sometimes these systems need to need to sleep, and you get sleepiness in your meditation. That's very straightforward. But there are other less straightforward ways of sleepiness. One of the sleepiness we have many meditators experience is just compensatory in nature. We have very busy lives. We're fully paced in our diaries. We kind of tick off the agenda points in our daily lives. And then we come here and we expect to be suddenly grinding to a halt and go into full contemplative mode. No busyness, you know... A meal is the sensory event in the day, uh, a boring Dharma talk and a lot of grinding cities. Yeah? And you know, your mind that has been stimulated and living at fast pace, suddenly realizes, "Oh, actually, this is pretty safe here. you know, I'm not getting killed if I don't do anything. I can just sleep." Yeah? This is the moment to recuperate. This is the moment where I can finally compensate. Or having lived on the fast track or having been overly busy. So I find myself doing exactly that, falling asleep. And my sleepiness is not a lack of precision or lack of will or lack of focus in my attention. It is simple, simply the, the, the opposite of what I have been doing in my life. You know, we know that we get caught up in meditation by what's happening in our lives. So if that busyness of our lives has kept us going, We suddenly find we're catching up. We're we're resting; the mind is resting, or it's blotting out. It's compensating for what we have done too much, and usually that takes a few days. If you have it bad, if if you're a willful person, then you will have you have lived very fast on the fast track. come here and to make the mind become still, you will need to release some of the pressure you build up. You will need to release control. And your mind, who has been um, pressurized to be obedient and be driven along by you, will, will just take its chances and escape and go to sleep. It will do what it actually should have done a long time ago. Yeah. And then you find yourself just nodding off, falling off your perch, so. So that's one reason for sleepiness. Another reason for sleepiness may be that you cover things that are even more unpleasant than sleepiness. Sleepiness acts as a cover for aversion often. Because aversion is an unpleasant state you may cover it with sleepiness. In other words, whenever you get to the point where aversion starts to be poignantly felt there's kind of a a Haze coming over you, and it's muffled, and the energy goes away, and it doesn't hurt anymore. Depending on what kind of pain you experience in your meditation, sleepiness is actually quite pleasant. You know, it takes off the edge, it is sedating, it, it, it blunts the sharpness, both perceptually or, or physically, even. Yeah. If you're grieving, um, maybe you've experienced that grief and you realized how sweet sleep is and in the morning uh, you know the grief comes back uh, when you recall you've lost somebody or something went wrong You're... and sleep, in this, the sleepiness can take the edge off an aversion, it can take the edge off the unpleasant sound of your mind and so sometimes underneath that sleepiness we actually have a a layer of resistance, (coughs) aversion, not wanting, refusal to meet. Sometimes the sleepiness is just covering that. There'd be more, there'd be more reasons. One of them, um, very similar to the first one, if you're very will-driven, and if we have basically not acknowledged parts of our being that were maybe not keen on coming to spend a retreat here, they were maybe keen on flying to Tenerifa for Easter instead of going on retreat. But these parts haven't made the race in our decision. Our conscientious superego has decided to go on retreat and become a good meditator instead. So these parts suddenly feel their chances coming back when you're trying to release control. So, if you have suppressed parts of yourself, when you release control, your willful superego gives up so that the mind can finally quieten down. These guys stand up again and say, you know, she can drag us here, she can make us get up in the morning, she can make us eat that food, but she can't make us meditate. So, as soon as she lets go, you know, i just fall asleep, I'll just roll in. So there's a negotiation, you know, we have different voices and different impulses in our system. Some of those, if you're used to kind of overrule these parts of yourself, and you then have to relax control so that the mind actually has a chance to become quiet, these downtrodden parts suddenly will rise up and become passively aggressive, they will become sabotaging your your superego efforts you know? so that would be a sort of psychologized version of sleepiness one brand of it you know? and sometimes we're sleepy as a sort of emergency stop you know our psyche has some inherent health and it may decide we're too risky here this is not risky this is not safe enough you know, there's too many people or too short time or i'm not held She wants to do experiments here, profound experiments, existential stuff, unearth, undig stuff, unravel. But this is not safe here, you know. She's too ambitious. I'm not letting her do that. I just pulled the emergency (laughs) brake and put her to sleep. So every time somebody says meditate, you just you know, you're kind of in a bag. Things go heavy. Now how do you find out which brand of sleepiness you have? Statistically, the first brand of the compensatory sleepiness from a busy life is the most likely one. Yeah, frankly, most people who are struggling with sleepiness in the beginning of a retreat will come out of this after, you know, two three days. If you notice that you are bright and awake, and as soon as somebody says meditate, you, you know, things kind of go. All the energy is sinking, and you lose all your structure. You know, you wake up, somebody rings a bell and you kind of go, oh, what was that? And then you go out and you're bright awake again. And if that has happened a couple of times, you know, this is an indication that something you do in your meditation is actually bringing on the sleepiness. It is probably not honest fatigue. You'd have to prime the mind and see where it is not sleeping. You'll have to, like I said yesterday, try to legitimize the symptoms of sleepiness, usually we are uh, shamed by that. It's not easy to be seen to be sleepy or to be feeling sleepy when we've sacrificed time and money to come here to wake up. Um, so you need to, in some way, learn the vocabulary of your body when it produces symptoms of sleepiness. That's a good question to ask yourself, what is my body's vocabulary for sleepiness? What are the symptoms of my body when it is sleepy? I can tell you mine, but you have to do figure out yours. You know, mine are kind of a leaden flow around my eyes, a uh, hardness here up in my upper torso, uh, particularly here, my two th- first three ribs, uh, something in my breath goes brittle, Uh, I kind of, my my head obviously becomes heavy, you know, I feel a sort of rigidity in my lower spine, something kind of locked in. And then, you know, the torso starts to move. As I said yesterday, you're not falling asleep all in one go. The first of the senses to go is the sense of balance. Our vestibular sense is the first one to fall asleep. So you will change in your posture. So if you allow yourself to feel this as early as possible, it's actually quite easy to sustain attention on symptoms of sleepiness. You can be quite concentrated on symptoms of sleepiness if you catch them early enough. And obviously then you can still do things. Breathe in, stand up, hold up your arms, emphasize your in-breath, things like that. Good, enough of sleepiness. Restlessness. Agitation and restlessness. Two parts. The agitation part is generally more mental. It's about thoughts that you feel you have uh, not acted in ways you wish you had. It's something like compunction or bad conscience. It's something that agitates your mind and gives you emotions of shame, of anxiety, of remorse. At the same time, you were in not a position, not in a position where you could actually do something. You know? It has very quickly something self-flagellating. You think about things you better hadn't done, or you wish you would have done. And that gives you a lot of bad feelings about yourself. You, know? you can still think about things you did as a little boy, and you kind of feel, oh, God, you know, that was horrible. and. Um, This is not a bad thing to have that um, um, ethical conscience, you know, the sensitivity there is good. The problem is that right now you can't do anything about it. Right now you're here. You can't even say sorry. You can't go and plant a tree or you can't make amends or you can't actually address the unease you have felt or you are allowing yourself to feel now. You can't actually act on it. So all you do is you flood yourself with bad thoughts and bad feelings. That's why it is an obstacle. The sensitivity is good. Um, but it's slightly displaced in, in the situation. Restlessness is tends to be more physical. It's uh, as if something in your body had decided to prevent you from still in your mind. It produces sensations, strange, weird sensations, tingling, itching, ants running over you, sometimes strange perceptions as if your hips continue over there or you start having a, a cabbage size ear or something like that. You know, you can get all kinds of weird sensations, particularly when you do a lot of body awareness practices. Um, and then the impulse is always to scratch the edge, to change the posture, to release, you know, crack a little vertebrae, to do something, to address it, and then the promise is it's good. And if you address it, it's good for 10 seconds and then it moves on to somewhere else. So that's what makes it restlessness. You know, sometimes you, you can actually move a vertebrae or you can move a leg and then the blood flows again. But if it's restlessness, it it doesn't stop. You just shift on to the next thing. It is as if your body had decided to produce all kinds of symptoms to stop you from doing your declared exercise. And once you start, you embark, you basically, you keep fidgeting, you keep addressing, you keep fixing, you keep relaxing, you keep cracking. (laughs) So uh, you can do that for an hour. You can adjust your vertebrae, and you know you've got loads of bones and loads of joints and loads of muscles. There's quite a few things you can do in an hour. You know you can minutely redress your spine. Twenty-four vertebrae, and each has a lateral. Many of them have lateral joints. You know, (laughs) there's quite some leeway, and you you never end. You never pacify that body with responding to its clamoring need to be scratched, or to be addressed, or to be moved, or to be released, or to be cracked, or to be something. That is precisely because it's an obstacle. The last one, doubt, is a a poignant one. In my books, doubt is an emotion. It is a question mark I have a feeling I should not have. It's a very unpleasant question that is open about things I feel I am not really entitled to have open questions. There are many questions I have no problems with remaining open. Uh, But some questions I feel I cannot tolerate being left open or undecided. And doubt is generally the attempt to Uh, It's, It's a mixture of things, but one of them is a strategy to not feel the fundamental unease that goes with something undecided, of which I feel I am not, I cannot live with that undecided. So I try to minimize the unpleasantness of that feeling, generally by thinking. So I take away the unpleasantness, usually for me it's here in the pit of my stomach, And I take the attention away and take it into the thinking process. So I try to cover the unpleasantness of doubt with an act of thinking. Sometimes that helps. Sometimes when I think about something, it diminishes the actual experience. Sometimes that helps. With doubt, it doesn't really help because doubt lives of thought. It feeds on thought. Um, and my unwillingness to address doubt at the level of feeling generally is what keeps doubt in motion. I go through probability scenarios, I usually end up at the place where the worst possible outcome seems the most likely one, yeah. and then another part which tries to convince itself that this is not going to happen. So it's a very delicate and elaborate procedure, both of having nightmarish uh, visions of what might happen and then at the same time some other part that tries to comfort me with tenuous um, constructions of cognitive nature that this is not going to happen, or how I would recognize if it would start happening and how I would recognize if it wasn't going to happen. So it's a very elaborate. Uh, procedure, as you probably know from yourself, and it's, you know, it is, takes me way away from the place where the mind can settle and be still. And at the root of it is a fundamental unease with something I feel I need to have resolved, and yet I haven't. Yeah. And I'm unwilling or feel un- incapable of holding. Now, the sad truth is there aren't quick fixes for these obstacles, for these meditational hindrances. The, result, the resolution of these hindrances is in our life. There are uh, strategic workarounds for some things. You know, for sleepiness, I've broached this up. For restlessness, it's easy. Just don't follow it. Make yourself as comfortable as you can at the beginning, and then don't budge. Yeah. Um, that's, that's easy. Um, doubt. You know, all of these hindrances hinge on you recognizing the nature of the hindrance. Usually, when we're in the uh, enthralled by the thing, we actually don't see the hindrance. All we see is the story. So we see the content of the doubt. We see um, the content of our agitation. We see the content of our desire. We see the content of our aversion. Right? So we follow the story. Or we battle with the story, we disbelieve it, we disprove it, we disagree with our minds. And in any way, it takes us away from the meditative effort. You know? Sleepiness is almost the, the most honest one, because it's, it's, it tells pretty straightforward what's happening. You know? It's not easy, but it's, it doesn't, it's not very convoluted. So, the first and most powerful tool you can have is actually to recognize behind your thoughts and behind your states which you think need to stop before you can meditate. You need to recognize the hindrance and meet the hindrance as a hindrance. Once you talk to fear as fear, you know, you have a lot of possibilities you don't have when you just run ahead of your fearful thoughts. Once you recognize aversion behind your aversion rather than uh, blaming people or blaming yourself or being miserable with the world or being miserable with yourself, once you do that um, you have a lot of tools. Same with agitation, same with doubt. So consider this, we'll maybe continue this in some other form um, with the second perspective Right now, this is enough. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.